the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good. I've never done the intro like that ever and probably won't ever again because that felt weird. And <laughs> <laughs> Sounded as weird as it felt. Did let me it? Tell okay, you. good. I'm glad it was at least universal in its feeling <laughs> and censoring. All right. uh, if you'd like to find us, you can on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. Also, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good. Plus, the show is podcasted, so wherever it is you prefer to get podcast, if it is you, uh, we would encourage you a little like, subscribe, and review does somehow help us out and uh, if you hit that share button that does more than you might think plus we're still not sure if this actually works or not I think you can tell Alexa play the common good yes I think so but say please Alexa and Google still prefer if you use manners so please please play the common good (laughs) I don't think that's true anyway okay so here's uh, in news I never thought would ever actually be real news uh Babylon B and CNN have been in a bit of a feud, actually. I don't, have you been following this at all? Uh-uh, not at all. all right, can you, you well, showed me the article. Yeah, fill us in a little bit on what the uh, what the article outlines. Yeah, it says that Babylon B, which we all know about, it's one of these satirical sites. Uh, it's mostly, like, religious-based, am I right? Or it seems well, to have really wandered be, from there. Yeah, that's exactly yep. right. So it used to be mostly, um, like, a Christian version of The Onion. Yes. And at least in its infancy, predominantly just went after Christian culture. Yes. Which seems was when it was now, really funny. Right. It's veered from that uh, a good deal. In fact, this article, it's funny you put it that way because it says the Babylon Bee widely has been seen as a conservative version of the onion now, no longer a Christian right, version of right. it. Uh, but this article uh, found at Fox News says the Babylon Bee had some fun at the expense of CNN after one of its reporters attacked the conservative satirical site over the article's popularity on social media. The Bee ran a piece Tuesday with the headline, CNN attacks Babylon Bee, the internet is only big enough for one fake news site. <laughs> and so, uh, uh, what's the guy's name? Brian Stelter. Uh, he started going back. Uh, back and forth with them, he said, oh, a fictitious Stelzer stated they're obviously amateurs over there at the B. A lot of times their reporting comes true. Uh, and so on Sunday, CNN reporters sounded the alarm after a single B article was satirized. The Democrats' reaction to the killing of Iranian General Kasim Soleimani was said to have been shared on Facebook over 500,000 times. And that article is at Fox News. But then over at the National Review, they have a little bit more of an opinion piece that's titled Attacks on the Babylon Bee are Attacks on Free Expression. Right. Because the push seems to be right now from the CNN people, but just people in general, that you know what, are these types of sites health, uh, helpful? Are they too confusing? Uh, and and uh, and so it becomes, it starts to raise this, this conversation about the role that even satire 
plays in in our media where there's a lot of things being hurled at what would like to be thought of as legitimate news sites of fake news. Right. These are these people are, are there. They are legitimately fake news. That's their point. And so it's an interesting debate going on. CNN kind of really not finding humor in it. Right. And uh, and National Review coming and being like, hey, this is, that's kind of the point. So it's a really interesting discussion. Well, and the number you mentioned to the 500,000 shares on Facebook, um, who said this? Donnie O'Sullivan said that to put this in perspective, uh, this is the same number of engagements the top New York Times and CNN stories on Facebook had over the past week. So if that's helpful at all for context, um, but part of what it goes on to say is a lot of people sharing this satirical story on Facebook don't know that it's satire, right. which is kind of the crux of the argument. It's sort of why I want to bring it to you, because we've maybe referenced it before. I think we've probably referenced Babylon B less and less mm-hmm. over the last, you know, Half a year, maybe, because of some of the veering off the the camp of mostly poking fun at Christian subculture. But I'm wondering if you think that the National Review has a case to be made here. Is is this an attack on free expression, free speech, or is there some collective ownership, some collective responsibility to minimize and limit how much satirical news, or it has to be so obvious that everyone will know it's fake, or is like part of the nature of satire is that it has to have some level of plausibility? My understanding of satire is that it needs to be close enough to the truth for it to actually serve its purpose. Mm-hmm. And so part of what it feels like a lot of people are calling for is like, well, they have a responsibility. If people are sharing this and they think that it's news, then this organization, Babylon B, needs to be more responsible or post less inflammatory things. And part of me wants to say, yeah, but that's the nature of satire. Exactly. That's what satire is supposed to do. It's why Stephen Colbert was so popular on The Daily Show, right? Like, there was some comedic there. There was right. some fake person. Not everything was true. Right. And so I think there is a role for satire. Satire, and just the same way, I think I remember it being an aha moment when you described comedians a little bit as the prophetic voice of our culture. Yeah. Uh, now, I, it does make me uncomfortable uh, that the you know the Babylon Bee kind of really goes one way, right, and really pushes. But I think the onus isn't on things like the Onion and the Babylon Bee; like they don't hide the fact that they're satire. Right. I think the onus is on the people out there who who uh, don't take the time to realize what's true and what's not. Right. And so, yeah, the 500,000, you know, however many thousands of shares and people, we've all been on Facebook where people have shared things and you're like, uh, that's just a joke. Yeah, right. That's satire. <laughs> right. And uh, is that dangerous? Probably. Is that the Babylon Bee's fault? No. And so uh, I think what the onus is on those of us out there who are so quick to share things on Facebook or Twitter uh, to do your homework, we've talked often about that you and I believe that Christians especially need to be uh, very careful about what's true and what's not. Yeah, we've and, talked about uh, that before. We ha- certainly have. And so I think the onus isn't on se- clearly satirical sites like the Babylon Bee or The Onion. I think it's on those people who'd like to share these things. Okay, so here's a, a follow-up question that I did not prepare you for. So what about some of the stuff that you and I maybe off-air have looked at the B specifically as posted, and we thought, okay, we know it's satire. That's actually mean or rude or inflammatory. That's a whole like other thing. Yep, yep. Of, but how do you? Who is the gatekeeper then of those things? That now it's less of an argument about the spread of his, of misinformation, which you and I have both gone after in numerous segments. Yep. But is is there some responsibility? Let's say hypothetically, it does identify as a conservative Christian yes. satire blog, but posts certain things about what's happening in the Methodist Church. Yes. And and some could argue is 
is hurtful and inflammatory in a way that is not helpful. And some people are like, ah, oh, you need to get over it. You're being a snowflake. And other people are like, yeah, yeah even satire has a line. I mean, how do you how do you uh, wrestle with so, that? So, again, I would totally agree with that. And I would say... But I again, I would like to think that the people who create the Babylon Bee, uh, for instance, especially if they're still using them, I don't even know if they are, but if they're using the umbrella of like we're conservative Christian, you would like to think that they've got some standards. Hmm. But when it comes to free speech, they don't need to. Right. And so what again, for me, the onus is on uh uh, the Christians out there on Facebook and social media who are sharing things that are uh, hurtful and that are inflammatory and derogatory, I think that says a lot about the person who's sharing it. And so do I wish the Babylon Bee uh, wouldn't do stuff like that? Absolutely. It, are they legally responsible not to? Not that I'm aware of. I'm, yeah, not, right. I'm a few credits short of my law degree. But uh, <laughs> but I do think those of you out there who call yourself Christians but share derogatory and inflammatory things regularly on Facebook, I think that's on you. And I, th- I don't think that that's what we should be doing uh, as Christ followers. So you're taking more of a ethical moral stance I rather am. than like a under, you know, the freedom of expression that, that they're still, I think I'm certainly capable that. of doing that. Yep. That's a tricky line to walk to though, because obviously not everyone's going to agree on what is like good satire that pokes fun of the right people. That's part of what, you know, one of these yep. articles says that part of the reason that they've caught under fire is that they're not that they're making fun of people, but they're making fun of the wrong people. It's much yeah. like the Ricky Gervais story we did where man, people were actually pretty divided even on the comments he made yeah. of the gold Globes, like, oh gosh, that's a little over the top. And other people are like, get him! Go get him. <laughs> he's yes. a, he's 100% right. So, yep. uh, man, never a dull moment in the uh, World Wide Web. And we'd love to know what you think over on the Facebook page. Uh, share us any of the comments or feedback that you might have. Where do we get it wrong? Where do we get it right? And uh, what are you thinking? Well, coming up next, I am very, very excited to have in the studio my friend, Pastor Greg Armstrong, pastor, lead pastor of Renew Church in Lombard. He's going to stick around for the rest of the hour, and it's a conversation you're not going to want to miss. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, slash The Common Good on Twitter, at Common Good Talk. Also, Brian, did you know? I did. Okay, well, no need to even (laughs) ask. Go ahead. All knowing Brian, we we have a podcast. It's true. Yes, it is something I knew. Wherever you, I've heard you mention it a couple of times. But uh, if you are a podcast person, liking, subscribing, and reviewing all that actually really does help us out a lot. And uh, thanks to all of you who have. But uh, I say this all the time. We love just Brian and I talking and tackling topics, but my favorite part of the show is having guests in studio, especially guests that I think are doing great stuff in the yep. world. So, Greg, wel- welcome to the show, sir. Oh, such an honor to be here. Thank you guys for letting me be here. Man, it's my pleasure. pleasure. That sultry third voice you're hearing is <laughs> none other than Greg Armstrong. So rather than me talk about him, I'm going to let Greg introduce himself to y'all in whatever manner he sees fit, and we're going to get into it. Awesome, everybody. My name is Greg Armstrong. I'm the lead pastor of a new church here in the western suburb of Chicago, Lombard. I'm honored to serve what? in Lombard, yeah. And uh, I am so blessed. I just celebrated 15 years with wow. my wife. Oh, that's awesome. I have two active boys. <laughs> I have one two-year-old and an eight-year-old. And, uh, and but we, So we have a very active home. Uh, just very honored to serve God's church. I love pastoring uh, our great community there, Renew. Uh, we, we serve a multi-ethnic community very intentionally in the West Suburbs mm. and 
I know we'll get into some of it, but yeah. just uh, just honored to, to be a part of what God's doing. That's yeah, awesome, well, thanks yeah. for doing this. I'm curious. It's always fun to hear people's stories, right? Like yeah. you didn't just become a pastor one day. Yeah. Give us kind of the Reader's Digest version of your story. Oh, man, I'm a church boy. I'll be honest. You know, I don't have that like crazy testimony. Yeah, like, yeah. My parents were like faithful to the gospel. My mom loved the Lord. That's awesome. I grew up in a home. Uh, I grew up in a, a Christian home. My grandfather was a pastor on the west side of Chicago no in K-Town and Roosevelt and Karloff. So that's where I cut my teeth in ministry. Mm. So I love the west side of Chicago. I grew up in Maywood, which is uh, just home for me. Um, you know, my, my story was interesting in that um, my parents were adamant about us getting Christian education. Mm. Oh, really? So we lived in Maywood, but they bust us out to uh, to Christian school in Elmhurst, mm. uh, Timothy Christian School. Yeah. And all my life I went there. So Sunday morning I'm playing B three at church, and then Monday we're playing like Michael W. Smith <laughs> <laughs> in, the, in the worship band. You know, oh, I mean, man, I'm in this. Screw, awesome. My world was just so screwed up, and so my parents weren't very intentional on making our lives multi ethnic, and they didn't know much about uh, uh, theological positions, et cetera. They just hmm. knew uh, we heard they said Jesus, <laughs> said Jesus, Ooh, so we're in. <laughs> and we want you there. And so that that was their intent, and and so being there. It just shaped a lot of relationships for me, for hmm. m- uh, multiple cultures, uh, multiple perspectives. Some of my best friends were from different cultures, yeah. uh, but I didn't live in that community. Right. So my, my home urban context was home, but every day I was bust into yeah. another context that was unfamiliar um, until I got older. So, so I'm curious because, you know, Brian and I are both pastors, and I think mm-hmm. we've even talked about this at length. What was the, m- the moment that you... I made the decision. You finally stopped fighting. Whatever it was that you were like, all right, I think, I think full time ministry is is the path for me. What was what was that journey like? Yeah, so we were. I've been serving in church all my life, uh, and then uh, we we were uh, we were hired to be a worship pastors in okay. Phoenix. Okay. Um, so while I was in Phoenix, um, ultimately after a while, this, this burden came on my heart for college students. There was Ooh. nothing for college students. Hmm. And so, uh, I went to the pastor and said, you know, can we engage the college students? Hmm. Just give us an opportunity at them. And so we started like anyone would start a college ministry, a young adult ministry, uh, Bible studies every week, hmm. et cetera. And then we said, well, you know what? We have people coming, you know, why don't we, uh, you know, have a service hmm. and somewhere in there is where the bug just, I didn't know anything about church planning. I didn't, I didn't know anything about oh, any of really? that. No, no, oh, okay. no, no. Had never even engaged the term. I was on the West Coast, and all of a sudden, something hit me one night as we were setting up chairs. Hmm. And I said, I love preparing the house for hmm. God's people and seeing them blessed. And that's where it happened. And the fruit was on that ministry. And that's where I knew you know, we're going to pastor for the rest of our lives and we're going to, we're going to plant churches specifically. I love that. Yeah. So how did you end up back in Lombard and yeah. How did you end up in Lombard? Just very specifically. Yeah. So growing up in Maywood, a lot of my friends were in Lombard, Villa Park, Elmhurst, Mm -hmm. very familiar with this, with the area. Um, I got to Lombard through Northern Seminary, which I'm an enrollment director there. So I'm a Mm -hmm. bivocational pastor and I'm the the enrollment director there. And so being back in Lombard was kind of nostalgia. But one day I was driving down Roosevelt Road and uh, we were going to plant in another in another place. And the Lord spoke to me in that moment and wow. said, this is home for you. Now, the reason why is because the Western suburbs look so much different than when I was a little boy. Yeah, right. Right? It's more multi-ethnic. Right. There's more clashing in the community in terms of ethnicity and, and, and people type. 
And I was just amazed at what what happened over the years, you know, Mm. 15, 20 years since I really resided in this area. So I'm going to the movie theater and I'm like, all these brothers like skinny jeans, tattoos, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going and, I, and I'm going to like I'm going to Wingstop on Roosevelt, uh-huh. and, and I'm seeing all these people. I'm like, where do you guys live? Oh, we live here. We live in Villa Park. We live in Lombard. I'm like, no, 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 you don't. You know, trust me. I was like the only brother within miles yeah. out here. And they're like, you've been gone a while. <laughs> like you've been gone a while. But again, something came over my heart and mm. it was so, it was actually satisfying to me. Yeah. I never thought we'd plant here, but it was satisfying to me for the Lord to say, this is where I want you to call for reconciliation. Wow. You understand the language, the culture, the various cultures. It wasn't an accident that you went to Timothy and you lived in Maywood. Uh-huh. I have shaped you for this moment. That's awesome. That's incredible. What yeah. is it like to, to realize that you've been shaped for a moment like that? Like I, I meet more pastors. I'm always so interested in the diversity of their stories, too, because sure. like for me, I fought it. Like, and I'll, I, yeah. I won't. I mean, I won't make any qualms about it. Like for me, it wasn't this like holy moment. It was like, I no, thank you. Like, is there another line? <laughs> I can stand in, right. and you're having this. Uh, it's you know we talk about the long obedience in the same direction. Sure. That's a, a line that we quote all the yep. time. You yep. have this moment where you're realizing all these different aspects have come together and have equipped you for this specific role. What what is that like? Can you walk us through that a little bit? Uh, yeah, it's satisfying one because everyone everyone's always searching for like what's my ultimate purpose. Yeah, like, right. You know, we know, you, you know, let's be honest, you can get a job at a church, you can become a pastor, you can do this, you can do that. Right. You know, my, you know, I'm historically, my, my background is music. So I've been a musician, a worship mm-hmm. pastor. All I wanted to do was tour with a gospel artist. That's all I cared about. Oh, no kidding. Oh, yeah, man. If I can, if I can get on tour, I'd live that life. Gotcha. I'm good. And so I had, you know, I had to come into the calling, but I've had multiple times where, okay, I've called you to be a pastor. Wow, you're you're affirming that in me. That's hmm. great. Then the, the next step for me was I've called you to a specific purpose as a pastor, hmm. which is multi ethnic engagement yeah. and calling for reconciliation. Right, and that was the more significant one for me because I come from a line of ministry. I come from a family of ministry. They're all doing something in ministry. Right, but for God to specify that I want you to be a voice for the multi ethnic community. And calling for reconciliation, yes. having friends and, hmm. and colleagues that are that are going after the same thing, having the hard conversations, planting a church yes. with these tough issues at at hand. Uh, that was that was kind of a wake up for me. That's great, man. All right, so that third voice you're hearing is none other than Pastor Greg Armstrong. We're mm-hmm. going to talk about uh, multi ethnic ministry. Yep. We're going to talk about renewed church, renewed movement, Northern yeah. Seminary, church planting. Having young kids, we're gonna we're gonna <laughs> oh. tackle it all. We're gonna do our best. That's just all. a little bit. Yeah, why not? That's all coming up next here on the Common Good on AM eleven sixty. Hope for your life. Well, hi friends, welcome back to the Common Good. You can find us all over the World Wide Web on Facebook, Common Good Radio Show, eleven sixty hope dot com. You know what? You can just Google us, and I am confident. I think you can tell Alexa. Have you tried this yet, Brian? I have not. You told me the last three days to do it. I have right, not it, done it. Give it a shot. Just yell at Alexa or whatever you do with Alexa. I don't. I we should try it one. in here. Let's get an Alexa in the studio. That's a terrible it. idea. <laughs> terrible idea. But we are joined in studio by none other than Pastor Greg Armstrong. Do people call, call you Pastor Greg, or is that like a... Uh, my church calls me PG. Do they really? They do. It, <laughs> and I didn't, That's yeah, awesome. I didn't initiate it. It just started happening. <laughs> so then I started signing stuff PG. Did you really? Just, I did. Man, I, I, I got want a cool in nickname it. like that. I had a lady at our last church. She used to always call me Padre, which always, <laughs> I always felt so cool. But I was like, you know, I'm not a priest, right? And like that doesn't. She's like, yes, Padre. I'm like, okay. Yes, Padre. <laughs> I love it. All right. So you were talking earlier 
Man, I love your story too, by the way, because I, I actually really appreciate, because I hear people all the time saying, I don't have a cool story. I like, was never addicted to crack. I never right. like robbed the bank. And you're saying, yeah, I was raised in the church by like two faithful parents and that's actually where my love for Jesus began. And so you're now, so you're a pastor, but you're also a musician and you're working at a seminary. So mm-hmm. we're going to get to all of that. But uh, you have kind of been given the specific heartbeat for multi-ethnic ministry. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? And maybe what are some of the things that the average listener might not know about multi-ethnic ministry? Yeah, you know, you, growing up in Chicago, right? I mean, we we understand like segregation. Yeah, we right. understand. I mean, growing up, I remember being on the west side of Chicago and it was just a black community, black mm. churches. And, mm. and then, you know, going to my friends' churches in the suburbs, they were all white churches. And, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't have communities that are, that are homogenous. I'm, I'm not saying that fully. But what I am saying is I, I believe the scriptures really, really outline for us mm. a multi-ethnic gospel and engagement. Mm. Like Paul engaged in multi-ethnic church planting. Right. Like all the people that we read about in the scriptures, the communities of people, they weren't all the same. You know, they, didn't, they weren't all the same ethnicity. Um, and so a part of that, uh, realizing that God has given me a passion hmm. to try to merge voices to some degree, hmm. right? And, and, to try, and, and to say, what do we do with communities that are experiencing um, this uh, this clashing, so yeah, to speak. Right. So, for instance, in the western suburbs, because of issues of gentrification in the city, mm. um, uh, people are being pushed out to the burbs. Communities are being formed that otherwise may not have, you know, said we want to be formed. Yeah, right. Um, and it's causing kind of some combustion. I mean, I've done a lot of interviewing in the west suburbs of Chicago mm. saying, hey, ma'am, do you know that there's a, a larger Hispanic population here? Do you know there are Muslims here? Do you know there are mm. blacks here? Oh, no, I have no idea. No kidding. You know? and, and we're not coming to the realization that we're all actually living together. Mm. Uh, so for me, I, I feel like there needs to be a multi-ethnic expression. If we're going to be living together, let's worship together. Let's be on mission together. Yeah. Let's understand each other. Right. And here's the thing. It's a messy work because yeah. we all we all are so different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's why I believe God kind of kind of brought me through uh, what he brought me yeah. through in order to try to understand various cultures, voices and perspectives so that we can be on mission together. Yeah. I love that, man. And growing a multi-ethnic congregation, people may not realize it takes some real intentionality. Oh, very what much we've so. seen in a lot of churches is it doesn't just happen. Right. right. So what does some of that intentionality look like? What are the steps you've had to take to try to grow a multi-ethnic congregation? Absolutely. That's a great question. And, and I will preface it by saying this, that these are things we are working on yeah. as a church. And I'm I'm just praying for some of these things to be in place. But one, multi-ethnic, you can't have a multi-ethnic community without multi-ethnic leadership. Yeah, right. Oh, so there has to be voices of various ethnicities and perspectives at the table mm-hmm. making decisions for the greater community. That's right. I'm a part of a nonprofit called the Courageous Love Initiative, where mm-hmm. myself and Hispanic community, um, uh, uh, a friend of mine who's a, 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 an Episcopal priest. Mm. That's actually the church we meet in. Mm-hmm. And she, I she, love that. And, and, and she's a white priest. And we come to the table uh, as leadership to bring the perspectives necessary for the conversations that we must have here in Chicago. And so there's some intentionality in that. Yeah, and, right. and, and there's some intentionality in the leadership. There's some intentionality in your in your structure and in the texture of your church, right? Right. So, you know, I'm I'm like black church, like, you know, playing the organ <laughs> on a, in a row, you know, flipping and screaming. And I love me, my me culture. Me too, yeah. yeah, yeah. Right? So, <laughs> oh, man, I, there's nothing too. better, in my opinion, there's nothing better than a preacher with a B3 organ behind him. That's me, <laughs> right? But, 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 there, but what I say in, in multi-ethnic ministry, 
uh, David Fitch likes to talk about mutual submission. Uh, right. and, and, I, and what I want to do is say, what preferences can I lay aside? Can we bring mm. all of our preferences to the altar? Can we bring those before God, submit some of those, be mutually submissive to one another, open space for all of us uh-huh. to be uncomfortable right. you know, engaging the gospel in this way? So what, what have been some of the hurdles then? Not just like the pragmatic, practical hurdles, but even some of the more philosophical, theological hurdles, because everything that you just said, I think a lot of people will nod and say, yeah, yeah, we need to mutually submit right. until they play that song I hate <laughs> right? <laughs> right. or until they, you know, the sermons get longer or shorter than what I prefer or, right. you know, like we tend to hold on to preferences tighter than we realize, which is why I think we get these echo chambers yeah. and you're intentionally trying to kind of go after some of that. What have been some of the major hurdles that you found? Well, some of the hurdles definitely are preference, yeah. right? You know, we, well, we like to have church. Well, <laughs> yeah, well, you know, we're trying to be on mission. We're trying to be available. We're trying to be open right, to right. other people that have other perspectives that, right. you know, we have a dream to have multi-class, multi-generational, multi-ethnic. And, you know, we just can't get up there and, and, and scream and scare everybody, right? So <laughs> some of those worship style preferences uh-huh. yeah. are some of the things. I made a mistake in my church, right? So we really do like great music and upbeat music. And uh, we went to, we said, we're going to do like a month of acoustic worship. Right? Hmm. And the church fell in love with it. I'm like, no, no. They're like, oh, Pastor Gray, I love that, man. I love that worship. It's it was soft. just an experiment. We're just, just trying it. Um, so, some of the difficulties and hurdles, believe it or not, and this this is the part that saddens me and hurts my heart is church leadership, mm. um, pastors mm. and other churches. Um, it saddens me that they don't want it. Mm. And so one of the things that we really burdened to do, I, and I was very adamant about this, was to not plant a church without friends. Oh, and wow. so I go to everybody and I'm not I'm not making shots at people. I'm just saying, go to everybody. Can we meet? Can we talk? Hey, do you see this? I'm not I don't want to ch- I don't want to change your church. Right. But I think we need to be in conversation together. Mm. Right. A black kid just got shot by a white cop. Let's talk about it. Right. Are you bringing this up? Mm. Like, I'm not trying to put you on the. But we need to have these conversations as a as a church community yeah. in the community. Right. And we get a lot of pushback on that. Believe it or not. Wow. We get a lot of pushback on that. That's fascinating. I'm curious. Also, your church, you already said, meets. I was just looking at your website while you're talking. Mm-hmm. You meet in another church on Sunday morning. What's the dynamics there? Uh, how does that even add to the fabric of what you're doing? Oh, man, it's it's, it's a whole lesson in itself. <laughs> oh, man. I, I have to say, so Mother Mo is the priest of Calvary Episcopal Church, mm. a good friend of mine, absolutely welcomed us in that space, almost made us come in that space. That's beautiful. She's fighting for the same thing. She said, you need to be here. And the reason why she said that is because she said, my people need to see other cultures in their expressive worship and how we can work together for um, the gospel. And so that's how we got there. Wow. Um, they, they went, they, and a lot of church planners don't get this story, so I am proud of this. But they, <laughs> it's an older congregation of about 40 to 50 people, all probably over 50, 60 years old, mm. and they moved their service times. No kidding. They gave us all, they, they said, where, where's your storage? And I, we said, it's here. Get rid of it. Gave us all of our stories. They welcomed us in. It was such a beautiful picture of reconciliation and moving forward in the gospel. And they have been such, I mean, we do not have horror stories like some do. And we love it there. And and then in turn, right, we got all these young whippersnappers. We're helping them. We're fixing stuff. We're going to put screens up. We're helping them with how to move forward. So we're both helping each other. Yeah, yeah. 
better each other. Dude, what a beautiful glimpse that is. I, lo- I love <laughs> that. Cool. I'm like tearing up over here. All right, so that third voice you're hearing is Pastor Greg Armstrong, and uh, he's going to stick around for one more segment. We're going to talk about a little more multi-ethnic ministry. We're going to talk about higher education, if that's okay. I want to talk sure. about sort of your music bent as well, because I yeah. think that's a unique part of what makes you you. So that's all coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. Plus, we are podcasted. If uh, you wouldn't mind hitting that little share button, that does really help us out a whole lot. Plus, liking and subscribing and reviewing does somehow magically help us. But we are joined in the studio, in the flesh, by... Doctor, you're not a doctor. No, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> Give it to him anyway. Give it to him like, anyway. Oh, someone's going to call me on that. <laughs> I work in higher ed. They're yeah, going to call right, you. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's why you just give off a very doctoral sort of energy, right? <laughs> so, Pastor Greg Armstrong, who is the lead pastor of Renew Church, but also a musician and a church planner and uh, someone who's involved, as you said, in higher education. Mm-hmm. So, before I ask my next question, where can people go to learn more about all the different things that you're involved in? Yeah, we're you know our church is myrenew.org. I would love for you to go there and just right kind of see what what we're doing and what we're about. Uh, my handle for Instagram is at Greg Armstrong. I'm on Facebook as well. Uh, Renew Movement is our, uh, we're going to talk about that, is our worship collective. So that's at, at Renew underscore Movement. And uh, you'll intertwine all of us at any one of those handles. Right. Love it. That's awesome. All right. So tell me about Renew Movement because I'm so interested in this particular part of your story because I'm yeah. a musician yeah. and a pastor. And uh, I don't find a lot of pastors that are also musicians for whatever reason. And it feels like so often in local church ministry, that can tend to be the greatest rift is between the lead or senior pastor and the person who runs the music. Yeah. And you sort of understand now both perspectives. What, what is a little bit of your history as a musician? Tell me about the Renew Movement and where have you seen God at work there? Yeah, absolutely. Well, Renew Movement came out of a, uh, a burden for worship leaders and those who are in the ministry context. Um, I spent the last 15 years as a worship pastor at various churches and uh, realized I was super tired when mm-hmm. I left. Uh, a friend of mine, we went and had coffee. And we said, uh, we haven't seen each other in a long time. We both worked for big churches mm. and we just didn't have community together. Yeah. And so out of that came what, what we called Renew Worship Nights, where we just invited worship leaders who were serving every week to come and be served. And That's so I would awesome. get on the phone. I'd call pastors. I'd call all, every denomination. I'd say, hey, you, I don't know, you don't know who I am, but some people are going to be like <laughs> dancing. Some people are going to be speaking in tongues. Some right. people are going to say a thing. It's going to be crazy. <laughs> uh, but we need you here. We just want to serve you. And what happened was a bunch of other people started coming. So we started hosting Renew Worship Nights, South Suburbs, City, Chicago, West Suburbs. And then out of that, you know, I, I have a passion for songwriting and making mm. records and things of that sort. We said, well, how can we bridge the gap between all of us who don't see each other? Right. And so we began a collective called Renew Movement. I love and that. And so we write songs and we, we do video. Some of our stuff is on YouTube and uh, we make records. We're releasing a new one this year. Mm. Uh, and so it's really, really great. And then we started a conference where uh, the Renew Conference, we just had our third year. It's been great. Had about a couple hundred worship leaders and worship teams come just to be refreshed. Wow. We love on them. We do breakouts. We help them. We resource them. All my great friends, pastors, worship leaders come and pour 
super cheap so that they're the sound guy, the the musician, the, the you know everybody can come. Yeah, right. And we just say you can keep doing this, keep moving. We love you. We encourage you. Here's how you deal with your pastor. Pastor, here's how you deal with your worship. <laughs> yeah, leader. right. And we have those hard conversations. Wow. And we say go be great, and that's our way of serving the local church. I that's love fascinating. That. Yeah. So when I look at your bio, everything there's a common word of renew. Yeah. Which is obviously intentional. Where does that come from? Why is that at the heartbeat of everything you're doing? Yeah. So coming out of that season of full time ministry. Um, as a worship pastor, we needed some renewal. We yeah. needed, that's how we came up with the name. We just needed some space and some to breathe again. Yeah. Uh, you can do church ministry so much and, and dig in so much. You don't even come up for air. You right. I don't even have friends anymore. I'm right. at church all the time. Right. And so that's where renew came from. So everything we do from our church to our mm. worship ministry, to our personal lives, as we say at our church, the renewal of all things, that's what we want to see the renewal of all things and all people the love of Jesus Christ. Mm. Man, hard not to like that, man. All right, talk to me a little bit about what you're doing at Northern then, because people may not even know necessarily what Northern is, so yeah. give us a little commercial uh, there. I love Northern Seminary. I want to shout out Northern Seminary. <laughs> oh, man. I work, I'm the enrollment director at Northern Seminary. I'm awesome. also a student at Northern Seminary, and I got to Northern um, out of a friend who graduated. I never intended to be in seminary. Yeah. She graduated. I was at the graduation, and... By, by the way, I'm a Baptocostal Pentecostal. Right? So, so you keep hearing me say the Lord spoke to him, and he did. So, but I, but I, I, I was, I, I was in, the, I was in the balcony, and the Lord spoke to me and said, "You can do this." And I'm like, "Oh, are you kidding me?" And then my wife ended up saying, "I want you to do this. I think you can do this." No kidding. So I got into seminary education. Didn't know anything about seminary. Uh, I was traveling a lot, doing music. A friend of mine was the the admissions director and said. Uh, Hey, we want we want to hire a missions counselor. I said, "What do you do for that?" Said, Just talk to pastors. I said, oh, "I can do that." All day. And so that's how I got to working for Northern. But Northern has wow. become Northern is a community of practitioners and pastors, and that's why I love it because it's not just a heady theological institution. Yeah, right. It is that the conversations are very dense, but at the same time, we do not walk away from the table without saying, "How do we apply this to the local church context?" Yeah, that's great. So if you go to Northern's website, seminary.edu, or at Northern Seminary, you will notice that our professors and our voices are leading voices. Absolutely, they really are. Yeah. That's they really for sure. Are. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious. Um, we were talking a little bit about the suburbs before. I'm, mm-hmm. I've, I used to live in Wheaton, now living yeah. down in Grove, kind of the western suburbs. Yeah. Uh, I, I was going to say, how do you see it changing, kind of looking forward? But maybe also, what's your hope for the suburb, the suburbs, and the suburban church, huh. kind mm-hmm. of in these, um, you know, five, ten years, looking forward? Yeah. Well, as as development continues to happen in the city, this, the suburbs is going to be the new urban. I think that's a good thing. I mm. think there's going to be a continual merging of cultures, which mm. I personally, I'd like to think I'm a little biased with the multi-ethnic perspective, but right. I think that's a God thing to where we can actually have some conversations that we could not once have before. Mm. Um, so I think that's going to continue to happen. Here's, here's my plea to all my brothers in the Western suburbs. I've been saying, hey, don't pick up and leave. Right. So like to my white, my white pastors and of other ethnicities, don't pick up and leave. Stay. Mm. We can do this. Part of our responsibility is to try to bridge that gap, to say, how can we coexist for the gospel? It's going to continue to change. Let's not just 
just keep going further west. Right. But let's remain. So I believe it's going to continue to emerge into more of an urban type um, uh, community. Mm-hmm. Uh, not not urban as people's perspective likes to look at it, but hmm. urban in a beautiful sense. Just like all the church planners are going to the city now to engage the urban content. Right. <laughs> uh, I, I think we'll have that opportunity as well out here. I think it's going to happen. Cool. So that's actually one of the heartbeats of the show when we call it, I mean, the word common there was really intentional for us because we, we wanted to be a, a space and a platform to actually mm-hmm. engage in common dialogue, mm-hmm. even if we don't necessarily have all that much in common. I'm wondering, sure. so you're you're a pastor, you're a preacher. Yeah. Would you just give some hope then to the person listening who they're looking at their newsfeed and they're looking at their neighborhoods and all they see is division. Mm-hmm. They just see, I mean, and there is a lot of that. These are divided times. It feels like our confirmation bias is getting stronger and stronger and people are just throwing elbows and throwing arrows from behind a computer screen. Like from, from where you sit, would you speak some hope into someone yeah. listening saying, I don't, man, I don't, I don't know how we can even strive for unity. Mm. Yeah. Well, you one, we can't give up because yeah. I believe it's God's call for us to be unified. Right. It's a messy work and it's uncomfortable. And I think it's going to call us into some new places of maturity. But one, one thing I would encourage one, I want to say, keep going, keep pushing forward what God puts on your heart, but get some friends. Mm. And I think mm. if you can hold on to one person that you can have this conversation with, mm. it relieves the tension of you feeling like you're isolated and you're alone. And so I, I believe there's more, work that can be done if you have some friends of different ethnicities and cultures and perspectives you working together in unity than us trying to save the whole city right yeah, because, right you know we can't save the whole city and say right. we want the whole city to be merged i mean nobody's going into k-town saying we're going to build a multi-ethnic church you know right. what I mean? yeah. but 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 we can where god places us find one or two people to say can we be in this work together and that's the work i do with a few of my friends to create just love to say it's just us three right now we're yeah. going to continue to call yeah. for Maybe it'll spark uh, momentum in the future. Well, man, Greg, just to say it, man, I'm so grateful that you're in ministry and <laughs> a ministry yeah. in our oh, area. I'm grateful, I'm for, grateful you guys. for the heart that God's given you. Would you Amen. hit us up with all those websites and handles and stuff one more time? Where yes. can people get hold of you? Please. Our church is at myrenew.org. That's Renew Church in Lombard, Illinois. You can find me at, at Greg Armstrong. Um, you can find Renew Movement, our worship collective, at, at Renew underscore movement. And we would love to just hear what God's doing in your life, and hopefully we can all stay connected. Absolutely. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. We're praying for you. Thanks. You've been listening to the Common Good right here on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, it's Ian Simpkins here. And after I had this experience with Thrivent where we were able to host this marriage conference with two other churches in the area, uh, my interest was kind of piqued with regards to what kind of organization this was. And it was really fascinating because they approached me, who was pastoring a church in Bartlett, and they said, we actually provide these free workshops for people that want to be wise with money and live generously. And so they sent me this link, and it was all these different topics, questions that people in my church actually were asking. And so it was remarkable. They hosted this workshop uh, a number of times in the coming months for people in our church to do just that, to to be wise with money and to live generously. And that's kind of how this relationship began because there was this no strings attached kind of mentality. It was just their heart to give back, to partner with pastors and churches to help people uh, live generously, to be wise with money and live generously. And that was kind of the continuation of my relationship with them. And so if you're interested in learning more, I can't encourage you enough to head to Thrivent.com today. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. 
together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You, of course, can find us anywhere you like. Brian will probably be at Panera. I'll be changing <laughs> diapers. Were you there yes. today? Of course you were. Yes. Do you get some sort of sponsorship? You should get your face on the wall or something. I would, If they would just pay me in chili, I would they, be good. God, you are so easy. <laughs> grilled cheese and chili. Can I go for that? Can I add a grilled cheese? Oh, you're today? adding a grilled cheese. Yes. Okay. Do they have a grilled cheese at Panera? Oh, my gosh, they do, yes. <laughs> And you dip that thing in their chili, man. Woo! I don't think I've ever seen a grown man so excited about grilled cheese in my life. Uh, I am a child in I've some been, ways. And no, no, no. I like a good grilled cheese, too. And my youngest daughter has started making, like, she's so proud of herself. She's 10, and she can really make a good grilled cheese. Like, really? the perfect brown, the right this. So every now and then I'm like, Emily, want to make me a grilled cheese? <laughs> does does like, she? Yes. Because oh, she, like, man. she knows she's good at it. Like, oh, oh yeah, I'll make that. I can't so wait I for this. Say, I shouldn't say all the time she makes it. Sometimes right, she right, looks right. at me like, uh, no. But. Okay, can I ask if she used mayo instead of butter? Is that a thing? Oh, my goodness, is it a thing? Brian oh, Fromm. Oh, no, we are a butter family, but I, I'll try the mayo. Is it? It's incredible. I'm telling wow. you. No, I'm telling this you. is this is new information to me. <laughs> miracle Whip or mayonnaise or no, both? No, no, no. It's got to be real mayo. Real mayo. Don't don't bring that Miracle Whip into this. I, I'm going to try Alexa and ask her to Perfect. talk to give us our show while I make a mayonnaise uh, grilled cheese. That's perfect. Well, we burned all the time we have for this segment. So <laughs> no pun intended. Coming up next. Hey, oh, uh, did I ever tell you about my grilled cheese party? We used to do no, but I want to hear this. Party. All right, we'll talk about that later. No, we'll no, right now. That. Come on, now let's do this. It's a really short. Uh, the idea is you get a bunch of griddles, and then everyone has to bring a, a, a type of bread, a type of cheese, and a unique topping, and then everyone swaps it. So you get like eight people together, and you're just making grilled cheeses, and you're like sharing different recipes, and you're it's fabulous. It's so much fun. It's like a really great community building, but it's easy to pull off. I would like to be a part of that. You can go to grilledcheeseparty.com. <laughs> I own that domain. No. Yep. I just laugh like that. Was, all right. Yep. Keep going. Grilledcheeseparty.com. Yep. Uh, all right. So here's the article out of Christianity Today. It says, love your neighbor in the new year. Answer their emails and texts. So I'm just going to read the first couple of paragraphs because yep. I actually I really like this idea, but I'm also kind of convicted by this idea. It says, uh, when a technological wave crests, I'm not usually writing it. I'm in favor of reading, not binge watching, dinner parties, not Google Hangouts. I was late to own a smartphone and join Facebook, and I still don't use Instagram. Embarrassingly, I have to call my teenagers to turn on the TV. Since I'm a Luddite, you might expect me to pen a familiar essay arguing for less technology use rather than more. More, but this is not that piece. Although a lot of people are resolving rightly to curb their digital addictions in this new year, many of us might need an urging in the other direction. The most virtuous among us might not be those who conspicuously publicize their return to various forms of analog life. Instead, those most like Jesus might be the ones who decide to become more digitally available, not less. Hmm, you might be thinking. They go on. Few of us want to hear the call to be uh, to more digital dirty work, but nonetheless, answering texts, emails, and direct contact messages from Slack and other apps is one of the ways that we follow the biblical commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves. These invasive messages are grueling to deal with, and though I might prefer uh, to return to a world where the phone actually rang, this is not the world I inhabit. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, the article actually makes, I think, a really mm-hmm. beautiful case for how important of this sort of like digital etiquette actually is, but I'm just curious to know uh, how you feel about it. I feel convicted. Do you really? Yeah, no, this is good because we've all felt that guilt where somebody texted you and you're like, 
but I don't have an answer for that now. I don't want to answer. And it just kind of sits there. Or worse than that is email. Like right. uh, I just today I answered an email uh, that somebody had sent me uh, probably between Christmas and New Year's. And it wasn't anything urgent, but it's been staring at me in my inbox. And it's just like, you know, this person's probably waiting. Like, it doesn't take much time to be like, hey, just, uh, I'll give me some time and I'll get back to you on that. Uh, so I think there's something uh, here that uh, that answering your emails, answering uh-huh. your texts, uh, showing people that sort of um, – uh, showing them that respect. Like, that's what respect looks like in the digital age. Right. Uh, acknowledging them that they're important enough for you to acknowledge, uh, whether it be the email or the text. I think she gives a very convicting uh, argument here, one that, like I said, convicts me. Well, let me share some of that argument because some of you listening still might not be convinced. Uh, she says, answering every single email isn't the answer, of course, especially in a professional context. So how do we discern the difference between mindless interruptions that serve as distractions and meaningful ones that serve as invitations. How do we balance the personal need for silence with the sometimes unwelcome needs of others? The life of Christ gives us a model. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus was not always reachable when people needed him. We've talked about this. Mm-hmm. He withdrew for prayer, and his frantic disciples often came looking for him, chiding him for his retreat. His example teaches us that a uh, constantly interruptible life is not the most purposeful one. Still, the Jesus of the Gospels not only withdrew to lonely mountaintops for prayer, he also allowed himself to be hassled by helpless crowds who always seem to arrive at the most inconvenient times, mm. on the way to other urgent appointments, on the Sabbath day of rest, or in the middle of meals and naps. For as many desolate mornings as Jesus spent in prayer, he spent as many harried afternoons answering the clamoring demands of the blind, the lame, and the demon-possessed. His proverbial phone, in other words, was sometimes set to do not disturb, and sometimes it constantly buzzed. What do you think of that? (laughs) It's true. It's good. It is. uh, To think that Jesus lived a life where he had his moments of solitude, he guarded those, right? He went off and prayed, went off on his own, which is always mind-blowing, because if anybody should have lived a hurried life, it's Jesus. Yeah, right. But then also that Jesus was never the type of person, at least as we read in the Gospels, who was like, no, I, I must get there, so get away from me, blind man. Get away from me, leper. Get away from me, whatever. I'm right. too important for you. Right. Is really convicting, because a lot of times I will take the approach, never never intentionally, but I'm better than you, I don't have time for you, but, but our... Our uh, posture can kind of give that sometimes. I'm not, ah, your email's not worth my time, your text, your phone call, whatever else it might be. Uh, and so I think the way she grounds this in the way Jesus interacted with people is really powerful. Yeah, I totally agree. So the, the author of this article, I don't think we mentioned her name yet, Jen Pollock-Michael, she goes on and says, uh, one critical step is understanding and resisting the boundless responsibilities represented by our digital lives. As Lawrence Scott helpfully illuminates in The Four-Dimensional Human, the Internet has redefined embodiment and presence. That is so well said. Mm-hmm. We have an, uh, an everywhereness to us, Scott writes. It's astonishing to think how the limits and coherence of our bodies have been so radically redefined. In other words, access to the Internet blurs how we understand something as element, uh, something as elemental as presence. When I'm sitting in my living room, ignoring my children, scrolling through Facebook or Twitter, where exactly is here? I think that is such an important question that I wish we had more time to talk about. That is well put. The, the idea of presence, because you and I will talk about presence a lot, and we've even referenced uh, Faithful Presence, and we've referenced some of the work of David Fitch, and I think 
yeah, you and I are both for that, obviously, but recognizing some of how those lines have been blurred in just our day-to-day engagement, because you and I, I imagine, I don't want to throw you under the bus, Mm -hmm. we've both been guilty of being at home with our families around us, mindlessly scrolling on a smartphone. Yes. Right? Guilty yesterday. (laughs) Right. I'm sure I was, too. And I I don't want to be, but I think it isn't just about, like, what she's proposing. It's not just saying, and that maybe is right for somebody else, like, all right, I'm I'm cutting all of this out of my life, mm-hmm. but having a better, more helpful, more holistic dialogue about what these digital devices are actually doing to our sense of self and our sense of presence and what our responsibility then is to the people that are, at least in some ways, attempting to engage with us. Right. And where do we draw that line? Yeah, it's, it's hard because uh, you don't want to be accessible to everybody, but... At all times. And she's not saying that. But even that question of presence, she says the question of presence is essential for understanding personal agency and agency is essential for understanding responsibility. Perhaps Mm. the most critical question we ask in our digital age is for whom can I really be responsible? And to even to talk about the ethics of digital engagement. I don't ever like that's a that's an interesting way to even phrase it and even think about it. Um but in some ways, it's how did I interact with people face-to-face or with a phone call? And now taking that to the digital age, I think it's something we all need to wrestle with because yep. texts are easy to ignore, email, email, Facebook message, whatever. And we got to figure out how to do that well. well. Let me just read how she concludes it because I think it, it wraps us up perfectly. She says, how we use our digital technologies is arguably one of the most important spiritual questions facing us today. As followers of the incarnate God, we want to favor an embodied life over a virtual one. We want to engage practices that cultivate patience when technology teaches us to crave speed. We want to resist, what is that word? Acedia? Yeah. The ancient word for spiritual sloth and reject the moral listlessness induced by the digital age. We want Mm. to be people of the here, not people of the everywhere and anywhere. And sometimes that can mean more digital connection, not less. I am so challenged by this. I have so many other questions. John, can we get her on the show? Let's 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 work on that because I would love to pick her brain a little more. There's a lot here. You got to read this article. people. It's really, really really good. good. It's on our Facebook page. Uh, The Common Good Radio Show. We'd love to know what you think. Coming up next as we talk about, I think last week, uh, Dr. Lois Evans passed and there was a uh, clip at her funeral of her son um, sharing some words that a ton of people have been sharing, I think, with really, really good reason, really convicting words, the words uh, of a son who is mourning the loss of his mom. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Everyone, welcome back to the Common Good. And Brian is loving this music. This you a, always this like love this rejoin. You always yeah. love it. Chet Faker doing uh, his rendition of No Diggity, No Doubt. That's and, what this is. And you give me that same answer every time. <laughs> every time. Are we in Groundhog's Day? Is this? It's so funny. I could have just predicted. I, sh- I wish I would have said it out loud because I've done this three or four times. <laughs> and every time. <laughs> Well, okay, it took us a year to get Modest Mouse, yes. so this this one might take. <laughs> I'm not making any promises here. I'm just thinking about mayonnaise on a grilled cheese. But the thing is, though, you could you could talk about Mets players over and over again. And uh, it would, would you be, like me to tell you the entire 1986 starting lineup right I now? I don't think order? anyone would like that. No. John's shaking his head no. People down the hall are saying no, hey, don't if, do it. If it's, we ever need to fill time, you just point to me and I'll give oh, you the 86 If we ever need to fill Mets. time, just play a static tone. <laughs> don't, don't, don't do whatever it is that you just proposed. Uh, all right. So you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, slash The Common Good. And uh, maybe I'm saying it too much, but the podcast stuff, 
that stuff really does help us out. Some of you are like, oh, I got a spare 40 seconds. Maybe I'll give them five stars and write a nice little review. That really, really does help us out. And if you share it with anybody, uh, that also really does help because we're a new show. And uh, I think it it must have been last week, right? Did we talk about the passing of Dr. Lois Evans? Who I think was, quickly. I don't think we we talked very much oh, about didn't. it, but okay. not that I, I don't think we did. So for anyone who's not familiar, uh, she's the wife of Dr. Tony Evans, uh, a pastor that many of us I know have looked up to for a long time and studied um, and followed for a long time. So, so Dr. Lois Evans, um, he had a, a funeral service mm-hmm. that was massive. And uh, I don't know how I even saw it, but someone shared a really short clip from her son, Jonathan, mm. who, uh, who spoke at the funeral. And this, this clip is short. It's only about a minute long. But what he says in this minute at his own mother's funeral, I, I just thought was was so profound and so interesting. So we're going to listen and then uh, we'll react. And as I was wrestling with God, he answered. And he said, number one, you don't understand the nature of my victory. Because just because I didn't answer your prayer your way doesn't mean that I haven't already answered your prayer anyway. Because victory was already given to your mom. You don't understand. Because of the victory that I have given you, there was always only two answers to your prayers. Either she was going to be healed or she was going to be healed. Either she was going to live or she was going to live. Either she was going to be with family or she was going to be with family. Either she was going to be well taken care of or she was going to be well taken care of. Victory belongs to me. All right, so you've not heard that yet. You're hearing it for the first time. Yeah, right. (laughs) Just just walk me through how how that hit you hearing it for the first time. Uh, So you can't can't separate that from just the depth of a son talking at his own mother's funeral. Right. Like, I'm always amazed. I'm grateful that I've never had to wrestle with speaking at the funeral of somebody that close. I've spoken at my grandparents' funeral, but that's different, Uh right? And so um, just the... I'm always amazed when people can speak at the funeral of their parent or their loved one or their spouse or whatever. And so you you can't separate the two. Like he's speaking at his mom's funeral. Mm -hmm. Like that's unbelievable. And um, it, it is such amazing truth that he shares there. That is a is what provides hope for them, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. But B is something that is so hard to remember, but is so true. Like, we'll, you know, we'll we'll pray for somebody to be healed and then they pass and you go, oh, because God didn't decide to heal them there. Like, right. I guess God, you know, they didn't they were their number didn't come up in that lottery or whatever. Right, you know, and you start right. to get a little you wrestle with God a little bit, which is OK. Um, but that perspective that says. Uh, remember, was it Greg Surratt that we talked to way back in the beginning of the show where they were seeing some healings at their church on uh-huh. the seacoast, I believe it is, yep. in South Carolina? And I remember when we interviewed him and he said, you know, we basically believe God's going to heal people miraculously. God's going to heal people through doctors or God's going to heal people in eternity. Yeah. Right. And we don't have control over which one. And that's basically what uh, hmm. what her uh, son said here is that, like. She was either healed here or healed there. And she right. and that is really profound. And we all know it in our mind, but to hear a son say it about his mom right. and to say it with that power is just so powerful. And as a complete aside, again, 
uh, some, it's nice to see that the uh, the preaching genes for how they fall down in the Evans family. <laughs> like that is yeah, pretty for all of them, right? Yeah, that, that seems wild. Well, you so yes. I think it was one of the shows that I was gone for. You did an article about the headline was something like. There's no shame when the yeah. miracle doesn't happen. Or it something was about like that. the Bethel worship right. leader's right, daughter. Right, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So, so what did you learn from from that perspective then? Because it feels like um, these aren't. It's not two sides of the same coin, but there's certainly different perspectives, or or, or at least so far different uh, manifestations yeah. of the loss of a loved one. And, and what you know, Lo- Lois Evans was a bit older than this, this yeah, girl yeah. that passed. But what did you learn from that article? Uh, some of it, I think, even what I said on that day was. Uh, I think that we as believers should unashamedly pray for miracles. Yeah, like there's, right. I, I left that going, man, it might be strange that they prayed for resurrection, but it's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, uh, I, you know, I want to make sure that they were cared for and this and that. But um, I, I think that we should be unashamed about praying that God does miracles, but still trusting in God's goodness when the miracle doesn't look like what we want mm, it to. Interesting. And um, I think that's where the hope lies, part of where the hope lies in a Christian funeral. Right. And, um, you know, that one with the Bethel worship leader's child was heartbreaking. Right. It is heartbreaking. Right, right. Um, but man, they a lot of people really threw stones at them for praying the way they did, and I don't like a lot of the verbiage that they used. I get it; it's a different theological bent. But in the end, it was people in grief praying that God would do a miracle, right. and then waiting on God. Well, God didn't do the miracle they wanted, right. uh, but it doesn't mean that God wasn't active. And I think um, what's his name? I'm, I don't want to just refer to him as Tony Evans' son, but oh, Jonathan, Jonathan Evans. Yeah. I think he really powerfully and succinctly encapsulates that when speaking about his own mother. Yeah. How hard do you think that would be to do to be in his, cause he looks like a young man. I don't know how, how old Dr. Yeah. Lowe's was, but uh, I mean, he it looks like he's younger than us. How, how difficult would it be to have that perspective? Because it's one thing we've talked about this before as pastors. It can be a very strange thing because sometimes we have to speak theological convictions that in our own lives haven't totally been tested yet. Oh, that's a good point. So like, if you ever taught on suffering and halfway through, you're like, there's like 10 people in this room, Mm -hmm. like more aptly suited to teach on this topic than me. What am I, my suffering compared to what I know is sitting in these seats right now, can't even hold a flame. Like how difficult do you think it must be to be a, 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 any kind of religious figure to have to give that kind of eulogy at the funeral of your own mom that by most metrics was gone too soon. Yeah, it's got to be really difficult. And I would guess a little bit of this one, I don't want to presume, but it might have been tempered a little bit from it was a long illness and knowing right. knowing of her, yeah. she probably had a lot of say into how this funeral was going to go. That's true. And so I, it's still unbelievably tragic and difficult. Might be tempered a little bit than yeah. if it were just a dr- like a sudden um, passing. Um, but yeah, I, it's gotta be difficult. I mean, she, she yeah. died, you know, relatively young, probably in her si- late sixties, mid sixties, right. maybe. Um, and that's gotta be really hard for a son to get up and, and do that. Uh, my guess is he probably also saw it as an opportunity, yeah. uh, knowing a lot of people are listening right. and kind of watching their family, Preach you know, the uh, what's the opportunity here totally. uh, and a way to honor his mom. I'm guessing he, they probably said to her. Hey, we're still praying for a miracle, but yeah. uh, if you pass, how do you want this to go? Right. And so my guess is she had some say in it. But I can't, uh, to answer your original question, it's got to be really hard. Well, I remember, and we've talked about my very first funeral, the first yes. funeral I ever uh, officiated. What I haven't mentioned is, so that first funeral was uh, suicide. 
of the father of one of our students in our youth group, which was just incredibly difficult in so many ways. Two days later, I was asked to uh, play drums for a funeral for a, a worship pastor. Later. Yeah, oh. uh, for a worship pastor in the area who had passed, who had said uh, to the pastor of that church, he, he, had, he had brain cancer for a long time. So sort of like what you're saying, knew it had been coming, had a, had a opportunity to kind of weigh in. And he said, hey, my one request, don't let my funeral be lame. <laughs> he, says, no I'm, he said, I'm dancing. I want you to be dancing, too. So I'd never been a part of a funeral service like this where there was a full band and we sang like his favorite praise choruses and we celebrated and it was still really hard because he had kids in their teens, but it really was like this for me, at least this like stark contrast from just two days prior officiating the funeral of a, of a suicide Mm. to like dancing in the aisles and just singing and celebrating and, you know, taking the Lord's supper together. And like that to me was, I don't know, it was a very vivid picture of like the whole, like the tangible present real time like hope that we have in Jesus and yeah. uh, either way I hope that you're encouraged hope you can go and listen to the entire eulogy because there's a lot of really powerful moments in it well coming up next uh, Jim Baker of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker fame some of you will be familiar with that some of you actually perhaps won't be yeah. so we'll tease that out a little bit um, he's been in the news a couple of times <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk about a brief statement that he made just a few days ago that's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160 Hope for Your Life everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us all over the World Wide Web. Plus, if you're a podcast type of person, I don't know what that even means. A lot of people podcast. Yeah. I podcast. You podcast. I podcast. We all podcast for ice cream. Uh, <laughs> you can find us anywhere you want. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, if you're listening even right now, navigating away from that and leaving a little uh, rating, a little review, and send it to a friend. That all does really, really help us out a whole lot. I teased it up a little bit earlier. So Jim mm-hmm. Baker, who uh, has a show called Aptly, The Jim Baker Show. Um, before I get into that, actually, by the way, everyone might not know who Jim and Tammy Faye Baker were yeah. and are. Do you want to give a little context there? Yeah, so they were televangelists back in the mid-'80s. You might remember Tammy Faye Baker became famous for having an immense amount of makeup. Right. right amount of makeup. That was her claim to fame. Yep. So they uh, they rose to fame, it says here, on the PTL Club. Uh, it was a television show they hosted in the 70s and 80s. And then they went on to build a Christian theme park called Heritage USA right. in Fort Mill, South Carolina, which attracted millions of people each year. I, att- I went there more on more than one occasion. No kidding. More than one occasion. On purpose? Yes. Oh, wow. Yes. Uh, I mean, I was a child. I <laughs> didn't have much of a choice. It was a pretty good water park, I got to be honest. No but kidding. it was also looking back a little a little bit of a strange place. Um, but that all fell apart, though, right? Their ministry, it says, fell apart in 1987 because he had an affair and there was some hush money. There was fraud later that put him in federal prison for five years. So it was in that era of the disgraced televangelist who yeah, really right. made a lot of money and a lot of fraud based on the backs of some people who didn't have money to give them. Yep. And very manipulative. So think Jim Baker, think Jimmy Swagger, think that whole crew. Right. The, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker were right in the middle of that. They got divorced. Tammy Faye Baker has since passed away. Uh, all of that, before we even get into what he said, uh, makes me wonder, why in the world does Jim Baker still have a show that people listen to? That like, is a good question, If Brian. you understand everything, and you might be like, well, forgiveness. Well, it doesn't mean they have to have a show. And, and I, it's still, these kind of things really bother me. That people like this continue to have platforms. Yeah. Um, when their platform before was used to defraud people. Right. Uh, 
then given back a platform just seems really strange to me. But Do you think there's any space for like, hey, he's paid his dues, he's rounded a corner, he's uh, like not even just for him specifically, yeah. but for anybody? Like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. He's like, yeah, I was disgraced, but 40 years ago though, so or 30 years ago, I guess. Yeah, I guess. I, I don't. Guess. Know. Yeah, I that's don't. not really it's, the point of the segment, had, but <laughs> we've had the pastor talks too about yeah. the disgraced. I don't remember the Jim Baker contrition tour. Maybe it took place, but. The t- uh, Jim Baker contrition <laughs> tour. That took me a second for my brain to process that. I actually do remember the, uh, the one of the very first youth conferences I ever went to. I had just started at Judson University right yeah. here in Elgin, Illinois. And we went to a, a youth conference, um, I want to say Tennessee, and his son, yeah. Jay Baker, was, was preaching. And holy cow, yes. that like lit me up. Somewhat the antithesis of his dad. Kind of, like fully tatted. Yep. He was like starting churches and bars. Yep. And he had like a skate park thing or yeah. something and i remember thinking like oh man this guy is the real deal now you know yeah. i've kind of since navigated a little right, bit differently right, right. but i remember really being inspired by like i can't believe this guy is interested in ministry at all yeah with you know that kind of backstory but all of that okay so that's some context the clip i want to play is very short it is from the jim baker show so we're going to play it and then we're going to react let's go you know what trump is a test whether you're even saved. Mm. <laughs> Only saved people can love Trump. <laughs> no, you got to be really saved. You got to forgive. You got to be able to forgive. You forgive when you're saved. Okay, so I'm reading your face a little bit here, Brian. Yeah. Uh, thoughts? <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Itty, uh, let me read how one person remarked about it on Twitter because I think this person actually uh, sums up my thoughts here because. The, the the way that we often attack these things, not you and I, but just people when they hear things like this, is either pro-Trump or anti-Trump. Right. And I don't think that's the right way to, to frame this at all. This one, binary, person, right? Right, this one person wrote, called the remarks manipulative, tweeting, I know some think that Jim Baker comment was bad because it was about Trump, but I want to tell you that it's always bad, morally oppressive, and manipulative to suggest anyone's faith is vindicated based on their vote alone, regardless <laughs> of who is the subject of the sentiment. That's what bothers me so yeah. much about it. You might be like, hey, I'm a Trump supporter. Amen, Jim Baker. You might be like, I hate Donald Trump. I hate Jim Baker. That's not what even this is about. Right. This is about going a test of your salvation <laughs> is how you vote for the American presidency. And yeah. he goes on to call the Democrats demonic, at which point in the show they show uh-huh. a, uh, Nancy Pelosi's faith. There's people yeah. amening. It's It's just... It's creepy, yeah. <laughs> and two, it's manipulative and dangerous, right. and I don't know why we've gotten to this point. Like, we weren't saying the same things about past presidents. You think so? I, not that I remember. I could be wrong. And maybe it wasn't being broadcast. That's I, a good point. I'll bet it That's still is being said. But man, is this just... You could think Donald Trump is the greatest president we've ever had, and to still say a test of your salvation is whether or not you vote for him. Right. You could think he's the worst president ever. Right. And to say that a test of your salvation is whether you reject voting for him. Right. Both of these are terrible theological statements that must be rejected. And this is what scares me and why it makes me angry that people like him even have a platform. It's aligning two things in particular that, uh, like you said, I think dangerous is the right word. Part of what concerns me so much, and I, you know, we we could talk all day long about how bizarre it feels to us or how like off putting, but I think that you're right, and I think that's the right tack to take. That theologically, I can almost see part of what maybe he's trying to say that man, forgiven people, saved people, uh, extend grace and forgiveness to others. Mm-hmm. 
Like if that's what he said, I'd be like, yeah, all right. Yeah, I, I am. I am willing to agree with that. Yep. I'm willing to agree with truth, regardless of where it comes from. Right. Um, but it feels very suspiciously snuck in with the back door of some kind of political alignment that the subtext is hard to not assume like, well, and if you, and if you didn't then mm-hmm. vote for Trump, then the assumption is, well, then maybe, maybe you're not really saved. Maybe yep. you haven't, you're harboring this unforgiveness towards Donald Trump and therefore you're not a regenerate Christian and the Holy spirit doesn't reside in you, blah, 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 blah. Like this could be played out in a number of different directions. That would be, I think it'd be fair to call it spiritually abusive. Yes. Right? And you might be thinking, well, why are you guys giving this guy a platform and this and that? It's because less than 24 hours after he said it, the video clip of Baker saying uh, this about only saved people can love Trump had been viewed nearly 1.5 million times on Twitter. Right. Like this was no small statement. Right. This, this got around. Now, it's part of it gets around people going, isn't this ridiculous? Uh-huh. But yep. it's still spreading. And friends out there, you know, Christ follower, like we have got to be so much more careful about the way we view politicians, how we view politics and the church. Uh, especially as the world is watching as this election is coming forward. Again, this is not a Trump pro or anti. This is completely oh, a great. This is completely a uh, salvation thing that is. What does that come from? Brian was on a roll. I was on that, a roll. That was me. That was, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I got to say. I'm so wow. sorry. Uh, maybe I need to stop talking. <laughs> I, I was looking down for a second. I was like, did Brian's voice yes, just change? I was like, is that like, anyway. <laughs> anyway, we just have to be so super careful. Even if you are like, I am wearing a red Make America Great hat again. I am. Uh, I'm going to uh, get out there and, and campaign for Donald Trump. Or you're like, I'm going to do all I can so he doesn't get elected. Tying it to people's salvation is so, you use the right phrase, spiritually manipulative, dangerous, and awful, terrible theology. So, I don't don't have enough time to get into this. What are some ways that you would encourage people to guard against that? Like, how do we see this? Like, this is a a bit of an extreme example, to be honest, but there are probably much more subtle ways that this kind of manipulation can creep into our thinking. How do you guard against that? I think as you see the Facebook posts or the articles or the blogs that are uh, that are holding up Donald Trump or any politician as like a prophetic figure sent from God on high right. or vice versa. He right. is from the pit of hell right. here to take you away from all things moral. These are fallen humans who are, who are politicians, right? Like, does God use them? Yes. Does do they do good things? Bad things? Absolutely. But but it's not this. Good versus evil. It's not the book of Revelation like coming. We already have a savior, right? We've got a Lord that we follow. And so we've got to be really careful when that kind of language is being used. I think at the very least, um, I would say resist binary thinking whenever you realize that's what you're doing. Yep. Right. The The beautiful third way of Jesus that he invites us into when we're slapped on a cheek, when the world says, well, you can either punch back or run away. This rabbi offers a third way, yeah. and I think that I think the way of Jesus still speaks to our modern age, and I think uh, that's hard work to do. Absolutely, because binary thinking is so much easier. Mm-hmm. It's so much simpler to just fall into this or that, and, and more often this versus that, right? And so this idea of like, how do I push back what is what seems uncomfortably black or white? And I think hopefully that is part of what we're accomplishing with the show. That's yes. kind of always been our dream, and that's our uh, our hope and dream for the rest of us. So, all right. 
Speaking of ridiculous things. Speaking of ridiculous, <laughs> we made it to the end. So coming up next, we're going to land the plane the way that we do every day with some interweb insanity stories we have not seen, sound effects we have not heard. That's coming up next right here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. And Brian just dropped his foot through his phone? Dropped my phone. Yeah, but then you made a face like it was on fire. Is that, was, no, are you okay? No, it was okay? this face of like, that was loud. <laughs> Both your hands are back. Like, you, Did it hurt you, Brian? It did not hurt me at all. The phone didn't hurt you? Nope. Do I need to call anybody? I, I hurt my phone, Do you need- <laughs> That's my bigger worry. Phone, Brian's phone, are you okay? No. Okay. <laughs> Some, someone somewhere is turning on the radio right now being like, what am I listening did to? Did you just give a phone what? voice? <laughs> <laughs> So uh, here's how the show always ends, for better or for worse. Uh, Our producers find some stories. They're usually ridiculous, but sometimes heartwarming. We have not seen them, and they've also selected sound effects. Uh, We apparently just heard one of them in the last segment. (laughs) That was a tease. Is that what it is? Nice. Good good tease, John. And very intentional. (laughs) That's our producer, John, weighing in. So these are uh, five crazy stories from the interwebs. 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 Internet, we like to call it now. All right, Brian Fromm, take us away. Man asked to be arrested to be with his girlfriend. That is adorable. See, some of them are sweet. Authorities in Kentucky say they arrested a man who wanted to go to jail to support his jailed girlfriend. News outlets report 47-year-old Raymond Pace was charged with offenses, including... I know him. ...possession of methamphetamine... Never mind. ...heroin <laughs> and drug paraphernalia. Thanks. A statement by Garrard County Police says Pace called authorities Saturday to report a stolen laptop. It says an officer arrived to find an intoxicated Pace requesting to be jailed for several months to support his girlfriend, who Pace said was serving five months in jail. Police say Pace twice shoved the officer in an attempt to be arrested, but the officer demurred (laughs) until Pace pulled out a bundle of drug paraphernalia. Oh, great. Captain Moron has a plan. Why did you make that voice for so, demur? It was a weird. It was a weird. Uh, <laughs> na- it was a weird use of that I word. I liked that. I was very demur. All right, Illinois, Chicago airports add boxes for travelers to dispose of marijuana. It's like uh, it's January what ninth, whatever it is. <laughs> Chicago Harris and Midway's International Airports have added boxes where travelers can dispose of recreational marijuana before they board their flights. The cannabis amnesty boxes, as they're called, were installed at each airport last week just as legal marijuana sales began in Illinois. The boxes are located just past the airport's Transportation Security Administration checkpoints, says the Chicago Tribune. Although police aren't targeting travelers with cannabis and it's not illegal to have it at the airport, possessing marijuana is still illegal under federal law and airspace is regulated by the federal government, Chicago Police Department spokeswoman Maggie Hoon said. What are you people? On dope? <laughs> I should have guessed that one was coming. That actually probably is helpful to somebody that listening. Like, helpful. oh, can't bring yeah, it in the air. Get okay. rid of that air. <laughs> Indiana. A woman wearing FBI hat tells gas station clerk she's with the CIA. <laughs> Records indicate a woman wearing an FBI hat told clerks she was with the CIA while trying to access an Indiana gas station security camera. According to the probable cause affidavit, South Bend officers were dispatched to the Golova gas station uh, on January 3rd in reference to a woman trying to look at camera recordings. She showed ID, but no badge. When officers arrived, an employee pointed out O'Donnell driving away from the gas station. Uh, and they went, activated his lights, and pulled O'Donnell over. She told police there had been passing of counterfeit money, and she needed to obtain gas station video. She also said she'd be working in the area for months. When asked who she worked for, the affidavit said O'Donnell responded CIA, but was wearing a white hat that said FBI. You think you can just waltz in here with no pants and become a cop? That's the plan. 
<laughs> that was a good one. Florida. Oh, Florida. Thank goodness. Man pretends to be a prosecutor, tries dropping charges against him. <laughs> you cannot make this stuff up. A Florida man accused him of trying to exhort, uh, extort a Daytona car dealership for money, and a new car came up with an interesting strategy to fight the charges against him, declined to file criminal charges against himself. Christian E. Mosco, 47, was initially arrested on extortion charges after he allegedly emailed a man named Glenn Ritchie who owned a branch of John Hall Chevrolet. This is a lot to follow. Yes. A franchise a car dealership. In an email to Ritchie, Moscow wrote that he'd managed to obtain two years' worth of customer sales information from Ritchie's dealership, and if he did not pay Moscow, he would promptly publish to all local media the fact that John Hall Chevrolet has allowed their customers' private identity information to be tossed to the curb, per se. I move for a bad court thingy. You mean a mistrial? Yeah. That's why you're the judge and I'm the law-talking guy. The lawyer. Right. <laughs> good one. That's a good one. I like it. Oh, your home state of Michigan. Oh, no. America's high five. America's high five. Three shot oh, boy. after line-cutting dispute at Bowling Alley. That sounds about right. Three people were shot after an altercation about someone attempting to cut in line at a southeast Michigan bowling alley on Monday night, January the 6th. One of the people involved in the dispute went out to the parking lot, retrieved a handgun, and then returned to open fire on people oh, no. in the business vestibule. Oh, no. Three people were injured. The male shooter is, shooter is still at large. The incident uh, occurred at Thunderbolt <gasps> Lanes in Allen I Park. there. Have you really? Yeah, that's really close were to my Were you home. there on January 6th? Uh, I gotta go. <laughs> Security <laughs> broke up a shoving match. When the man returned, he fired eight shots. The three people injured were taken to the hospital. Two in serious condition. The third person is in fair condition. Smokey, this is not Nam. This is bowling. There are rules. <laughs> Little, uh, uh, Big Lebowski? I think so. You've seen Big Lebowski, yeah? Sure. <laughs> no, I have not. I know You've it's not? one I have to see. Oh, boy. Do we have a running list going, John? Right, we should. Alexa, what have I not seen? <laughs> You'd be a whole show at this point. Just yeah, so that's true. Just things things Brian hasn't Brian's seen. Bands he hasn't heard. Yeah. That's a million-dollar idea, John. I like it. Let's do it tomorrow. We are here each and every day, Monday through Friday, 4 to 6 p.m. We hope you join us again here on AM 1160 on The Common Good. My name is Ian along with Brian Fromm. Have a great night.